Good morning, everyone. I'm so glad you decided to join us online again. Uh, I wanted to share something with you today. I'm not sure if you've heard this or not, but we are in the midst of a global pandemic. Yes, it's true. If you haven't heard that we're in the midst of a viral pandemic, then you have been hiding under a rock because most of the world has been affected by this global pandemic in one way or another. As the physical coronavirus pandemic began to spread, an emotional pandemic followed fast in its wake. Even before COVID-19 hit the shores, the United States was clinically anxious people. We were already clinically anxious. But now doctors are reporting the spread of despair, worry, depression. They are at an all-time high. This pandemic has caused many people to panic. Now we all know about the panic buying that's been happening. It started at the very beginning of this pandemic and it is even continuing today. People are hoarding weird things like toilet paper, um, but they're hoarding cleaning supplies and hand sanitizers. Those things I can understand, but another thing they're hoarding that I just don't get is spam. Yes, people are hoarding spam and bottled water. The thing about fear is that fear often leads, to, leads each and every one of us to make dumb decisions that actually make a bad situation even worse. Um, I saw a post that read, to the people who have bought 27 bottles of soap, leaving none on the shelves for others to buy, you do realize that to stop getting coronavirus, you need other people to wash their hands too. You great thundering walloper. I have no idea what a walloper is, but I like that word and I think I'm going to start using it from now on. The reality is fears are rising all around the world. People who have never felt anxious before are suddenly weighed down with this worry and anxiety. And I think one of the reasons that a viral outbreak is so scary for some people is because with a viral outbreak, you can't see the enemy, right? Well, germs and and bacteria are microscopic, so you don't see them coming. If infected people or surfaces just had a, a green glowing aurora or something like that, we would know to avoid it, right? If you walked into a store and you saw different surfaces and people that had green glowing auroras around them or on them, you would know, okay, I'm not gonna touch that. It has a, a, a bacteria or a viral infection on it. But we can't see microbes like viruses, and that, I think, just escalates people's fears. Well, viruses and bacteria aren't the only thing that can't be seen with the naked eye. The Bible tells us there's a whole unseen world all around us. In fact, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4.18, we look not at the things which are seen, but at the, at the things which are not seen. You know, this is such a strange statement, isn't it? How do we look at the things which are not seen? While you contemplate that question, I'd like to share with you a story from the Old Testament. Now, this story is found in 2 Kings chapter 6. So if you want to open your Bible or your Bible app and follow along, you can turn to 2 Kings chapter 6. And I'm going to read scripture a little bit differently today. First, I want to give you just a little bit of background, and then we're going to um, kind of break it down verse by verse. The kingdom of Israel was at war with the kingdom of Aram. But the king of Israel seemed to predict Aram's every move. Everywhere Aram's army went, Israel was one step ahead of them, so much so that the king of Aram, Aram assumed he had a spy in his camp. 
right? That must be what's happening. There must be a spy in my camp. But there wasn't a spy. Rather, God was speaking to the prophet Elisha and giving him inside information. He was giving him divine knowledge and vision. And Elisha was passing on this knowledge to the king of Israel. So when the king um, of Aram realized what was happening, he sent his army to find Elisha and capture him. So one morning, Elisha's servant pulled back the curtains and discovered that their house was totally surrounded by Aram's army. Now, just as many of us would have done in this situation, he cries out in fear and panic. And in verse 15 of um, 2 Kings chapter 6, he says, Oh no, my lord, what shall we do? Now, we might expect that Elisha would have come up with a cunning plan to make an undercover exit or to hide somewhere so that they wouldn't have been found. But instead, Elisha calmly replied in verse 16, Don't be afraid. We have more forces on our side than they have on theirs. Elisha's servant was completely confused, so Elisha prayed this in verse 17. O Lord, open his eyes and let him see. God answered Elisha's prayer, and Elisha's servant looked out the window to see an army of angels. The entire hillside was covered with horses and chariots of fire. Then as the Aramean army advanced towards them, Elisha prayed again to the Lord in verse 18. Please strike these people with blindness. And again, verse 18 tells us that God answered Elisha's prayer and struck the enemy blind. Now in verse 19, uh, full of confidence and bravado, Elisha walked out to the Arameans and in their confusion, he convinced them that they had arrived in the wrong city. Imagine that scene. So he offered to lead them to the man that they were actually looking for. And since they didn't have much choice, the soldiers followed Elisha all the way to the neighboring city of Samaria. He led them right to the heart of the city. And in verse 20, it says that he prayed again, O Lord, now open their eyes and let them see. So as their vision returns, they quickly realize that they have been duped, right? The Arameans were now the ones that were surrounded by the Samaritan army. And in verse 21, the cocky king of Samaria asked Elijah, well, shall we kill them? But Elisha replied, of course not. Do we kill prisoners of war? Give them food and drink and send them home again to their master. So the king made a great feast for them, and then he sent them home to Aram. And 2 Kings 6.23 says, after that, the Aramean raiders stayed away from the land of Israel. I think that's a great story, right? It's, it's wonderful. Of course, the question is, what do we learn from this story? What does this story tell us? Well, the central focus or the central theme of this sto story is the ability to see. First, Elisha prays that his servant's eyes would be open so that he could see. And then he prays that his enemies would be unable to see. And then he prays again that they would be able to see. So all this raises the question, in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic, Am I looking at the things which are seen or the things that are unseen? I'd like to point out three things in this story that were unseen but ever-present. These same three things are present in our lives, even though we, they may go unseen at times. So the first unseen thing is God's presence, right? When Elisha's servant looked outside, all he saw was the enemy soldiers surrounding them on all sides and closing in fast. 
So immediately panic sets in, fear sets in. It begins to rise and swell within him. But when Elisha prayed that God would open his eyes, he suddenly realized that the God of angel armies was on their side. God the Almighty, creator of the cosmos, was with them, and he's with us too. He is with us. The Bible tells us that God is omnipresent, which means he is everywhere all the time. David recognized this when he wrote in Psalm 139, verses 7 to 8, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. And in Matthew 28, 20, Jesus promised, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That reminds me of a story I heard this week of a little boy named Doug. And one night, Doug was sitting on the porch with his mom, and he's looking at the full moon. And he asked his mom if God was on the moon. And she said, yeah, God is everywhere. So little Doug, he thought for a moment, and then he said, is God in my tummy? And not knowing quite where the question was leading, his mother said, well, yeah, sort of. And then Doug declared, I think God wants some milk and cookies. God is always with us, right? We can't escape his presence. But like that little boy and like Elisha's servant, we have some trouble seeing him. That is, we don't always recognize his presence. So how do we learn to see God? How do we learn to recognize his presence? Well, we can start with prayer, just like Elisha did. We can pray to God, Lord, open the eyes of my heart. Open the eyes of my heart so that I can see you in my life. Second, we can worship together, just as we're doing this morning. It will help us to become more aware of God's presence in our life. But most importantly, we can see God through the life of Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Colossians 1.15, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. So if you want to see God, look to scripture. Look at Jesus and his life. Jesus is the lens through which we see God. So as we read through the four Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we'll begin to see God more clearly. Often we know that God is there, but he's blurry and out of focus. He's obscure by our surroundings and our circumstances. But when we focus the lens of faith through prayer and worship and through the life of Jesus, we start to see God more clearly in our own life. So the first unseen thing we should look for in our life is God's presence. But we should also look for God's protection. Psalm 34, 7 says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. That's just what Elisha's servant saw when he peered out the window. God had lifted the veil between the earthly realm and the spiritual realm, and all of a sudden, Elisha's servant could see all these angels that had encamped and surrounded them, and they far outnumbered those that, uh, of their enemy. Jesus also mentions this massive angel army in scripture. When Peter drew a sword to prevent the soldiers from arresting Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus rebuked Peter, and he said to him, don't you realize that I could ask my father for 12 legions of angels to protect us? And he would send them instantly. 12 legions equals 72,000 angels. That is a lot of angels. 
Jesus, of course, didn't need that protection because he knew it was God's will for him to go to the cross. But very often, we do need protecting. We need to ask God for his protection, especially in perilous times like this. We need to know that God has his angels surrounding us, protecting us, and reminding us that God is mightier than the enemy. He is mightier than any enemy that we will ever face. The problem is, as humans, we want to see God's protection, right? We want to see it as this magical force field that keeps us from all harm. Yes, God can prevent any evil or any disaster, but we have to remember that we live in a fallen world where we have free will, and so does everyone else. Many times, God works in ways that we don't understand. Sometimes, God protection comes in the form of peace and strength in the midst of despair. And other times, God protection comes as an ending. Something is severed because he sees something more or something better on the horizon that we don't see. Often throughout the Old Testament, God is compared to a strong tower or a mighty fortress. And when the Israelites took refuge with Solomon's fortress or the Tower of David, their enemies didn't just pack up and go home. They still had a battle to fight, right? Just because they were within the fortress didn't mean that, you know, like in the game of tag, they were on the safe spot. They still had a battle to fight. They weren't on a safety zone, and once they went into the fortress, there was no fighting that could take place. They still had to fight, but from within the fortress, they had an advantage. Rather than being easy targets out in the open, they could fight from a position of strength, from within the mighty walls of their fortress. Additionally, they could climb the tower and look down on the enemies, giving them a better vantage point and perspective. God does the same for us. When we turn to God in times of troubles, our problems don't just go away, but we can face those problems from a position of strength, and we can see them from God's perspective. As a child of God, you can rest knowing that no matter what hardships you face, God is your shelter, your strong tower, your protector. There is nothing anyone can come up with that is not covered by the promises of God's protection in God's word. He has provided a shelter that is ours for the taking. In fact, according to Psalm 61.3, God has been a shelter for me and a strong tower from my enemy. God himself is our shelter and a refuge. The dictionary defines refuge as that which shelters or protects from danger, any place inaccessible to an enemy. Psalm 91.4 tells us, under his wings shall you trust and find refuge. When trouble comes your way, stay in that place of refuge, that refuge in God's presence. It's a safe place from the enemy. Finally, in addition to God's presence and protection, we ought to look for God's providence. God's providence refers to God's plan and provision. John Piper says, the word providence is striking. It comes from the word provide, which has two parts, pro, and the Latin part is forward or on behalf of, and vide, and in the Latin that is uh, to see. So you might think that provide would mean to see forward or to foresee, 
but it's not quite that. It means to supply what is needed or to give sustenance or support. And so the noun providence has come to mean the act of providing for or sustaining and governing the universe by God. Why is this? Well, there is a linguistic reason and a theological reason. Linguistically, pro means on behalf of or forward. So provide can mean to see on behalf of. We say in the English language, I'll see to that, right? See to means I'll take care of, I'll provide for. In other words, seeing to something with a purpose is to make provision for what you see. Like you see a need and you see to it. So seeing to something is actually actually acting on behalf of something or someone. It is providing for a need. Therefore, providence is the act of God's seeing to the universe. He is seeing to it. He'll see to that need. Theologically, there's a reason why seeing to means providing for. If you think back on the story of Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac, before they went up on the mountain, Isaac said to his father, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And when God had shown Abraham a ram caught in the thorns, Genesis 22:14 says, Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. Whenever it says provide in Genesis 22, the Hebrew word is see. Very simply, Abraham said to Isaac, God will see for himself the lamb. And in verse 14, the Lord will see. So why does God seeing in Hebrew mean that he will provide? I think the deepest answer is that God never sees without acting. He is God. He is not a passive participant in a world that exists without him sustaining it. Wherever God is looking, God is acting. If God perceives, he performs. If he inspects, he affects. In other words, there's a profound theological reason why providence does not merely mean foreknowledge, but rather the act of sustaining or governing when you see a need. When God sees, he sees to it. His seeing is always with a view of responding, of doing. Where he patrols, he controls. We can't read 2 Kings chapter 6 without getting a strong sense of God's providence. As this sequence of unusual events unfolds, it becomes more and more obvious as we read on that it was all a part of God's plan. And even though we may not see it or understand it, everything that we are going through right now is all a part of God's plan too. Plans are funny things. Most of the time when we make them, we aren't really the ones who control their outcomes, right? Sure, we can do our best to try and make that happen, but so much of our world and our lives are dictated by things outside of our control. Just when you think that you've got life all figured out, life throws you a curveball. And whether it's a consequence of something we've done or simply uh, circumstances that are, that are out of our control, suddenly plans change, and sometimes they totally disappear. Often the reason that life doesn't go according to plan is that God has other plans and his plans supersede ours. James knows all about this. In the New Testament, he wrote to Christians who were scattered across the Roman Empire in James 4, verses 13 to 16. 
And he says, look here, you who say today or tomorrow we are going to a certain town and we'll stay there a year. We will do business there and make profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while, then it's gone. What you ought to say is, if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this and that. Otherwise, you are boasting about your own pretentious plans, and all such boasting is evil. Now, I'm not saying that plans are a bad thing. I think plans are a good thing. But when your whole life is shaped around your plans, you can become so focused on accomplishing your own plans that you lose sight of God's ways. Too often our lives are dedicated to serving our own agendas. Proverbs 19.21 says, You can make many plans, but the Lord's purposes will prevail. The best thing that we can do when looking to the future or when life doesn't go according to our own plan is to just let God be in control. Align your life with his plan. And instead of trying to fit God into our plans, we need to fit into God's plan. Right now, it feels like the world has gone crazy. This pandemic certainly wasn't a part of my plan, and we may not be able to see how it fits into God's plan. But the truth is, God is always in control, and his plans are never thwarted. No pandemic can thwart God's plans. So it may be hard to see, but let's look for God's providence in the midst of this pandemic. When Elisha's servant looked out the window that morning, he couldn't see God's presence. He couldn't see God's protection. And he certainly couldn't see God's providence. All he could see was peril and problems. Consequently, he was petrified. He was panic-stricken. Maybe you can relate. In this climate of fear and foreboding, we need to learn to look not at the things which are seen, but the things that are unseen. Like Elisha, we need to see God's presence in our lives. We need to see God's protection in our lives. And we need to see God's providence in our lives. We need to pray that God will open our eyes so that we may see we also need to pray for others that God will open their eyes and give them comfort and courage and hope for whatever life has in store for them. Let's pray together. Lord God, as we struggle to cope with the consequences of this pandemic, we ask you to help us to see the unseen. Open our eyes that we may see you, that we may see your presence and your protection and your providence in our lives. Help us, Lord, to recognize your presence in our community and in the world around us. Help us to be more aware of your protection. Help us to seek shelter within you. And help us to see the beauty of your providence and trust that your plans will never fail. Please protect those most vulnerable to this virus and those who are struggling financially because of it. Help us to use this opportunity to love our neighbors and perhaps open their eyes to your great love for them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. May the peace of the Lord be with you. Thank you. Love one another. Be good.